You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Well, good morning, church family. How are you feeling this morning? Good, good. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, before we dive into the sermon, I wanted to uh, just make a couple of announcements. Uh, first, our, our Christmas Eve service is still a go this year. We have wrestled and, and discussed with what that would look like this year amidst all the you know, COVID-19 and, and all, all the things that we're trying to, the protocols we're trying to follow. We debated doing it outside and all the other things. And what we've decided to do as a church is, for now, we will be having one service inside right here. We have a sign-up online uh, for you to go ahead and reserve your seat. That service is maxed out at 100 people. If you look around this room, this room can seat up to 300. And our capacity with the current seating, depending on how the, the family units come, is around 100, making sure that everyone still has their space. So once we hit that number, assuming we do hit that number, maybe it goes over, we have a wait list that is also there. And as soon as we hit a, a, another number, let, let's say 25, we will then add a second service uh, and so currently the first service is at 5 o'clock. The second service, if we so need it, would be added, would be at 3.30. We are also looking into being able to do a live stream for that evening. Uh, and so work with us on that. Go ahead and talk with your family about what your Christmas Eve plans look like. And you can go ahead and sign up online. It's on our website. I believe it's the same link on our Instagram. If you hit that link, it'll take you straight to the same way that you reserve your seats for here on Sunday morning. You can reserve your seat for Christmas Eve. So look forward to seeing you on December 24th at 5 p.m. or possibly, if uh, the Lord so wills, 3.30 as well. So we are in this series talking about the lost art of gratitude. And, and I'm not going to lie to you, uh, as I was in preparation for this week, I probably had about 10 or 15 ideas in my head that I just kept batting around. I just, I just kept going, okay, Every Thanksgiving, we, we kind of talk about this idea of being thankful, and, and I, I think it's, as I mentioned last week, it's, it's an idea that we can bring to a worship service or a gathering that we can kind of discount. We can kind of say, yeah, yeah, he's going to talk about Thanksgiving, but I, I really want us to lean in for just a few moments and, and really look at what kind of attitude that would have and, and play out in our life. Do, do we think that God only you know, wants us at, to celebrate thankfulness or gratitude or gratefulness one time a year or a season a, a, of year? And as I spoke last week, that, that, that could be further from the truth. I think what God wants us to do is He wants us to lean in and be grateful daily. And so the bottom line that I, that I came to for this, this morning after reading several different texts and commentaries and listening to pastors and talking to friends uh, with really much more wisdom than I ever uh, could, could glean, I came up with one thing, and that, that is finding gratitude is a choice. Like being grateful, being thankful comes down to one simple thing. Do you choose to do that? Let me ask you a question. How do you prepare for things in your life? Maybe it's a a, a, a job interview coming up. If, if a job interview was coming and you were excited about this new job, how would you go about preparing for it? Maybe you would set up 
mock interviews. I had a friend recently who was changing his line of work, and he was going from one line of work to a completely different line of work. And so he actually had a couple of his friends that were in that, that area of expertise, and he said, can you interview me? Can, can we sit down and talk? And so they would go through these mock interviews. Maybe you go over your resume, and you pour yourself over this resume, or maybe you just have conversations with your friends. Maybe that's how you prepare for the big interview, or maybe you're preparing for a big date, right? You, you, you got this big first date, or maybe it's the date, the one where you're going to pop the question, or, or something else is going on in this date. You're going to have to have a, a good conversation with this other person. So how do you go about preparing it? You run the conversation over and over in your mind, or, or, or maybe you go out and buy some special clothing or some shoes and you look in the mirror a little bit. Maybe you get some other people to weigh in on what you're wearing and maybe you brush your teeth a little better that morning. You know, whatever it is, I don't know. How do you prepare for the big date? How do you prepare to have a tough conversation with someone? Some of us in the room enjoy tough conversations. Others run from them. I would imagine those two people would prepare for that conversation very differently. The person who loves confrontation and likes to have a, a good heated you know, discussion probably doesn't think about it much during the day because, you know, it's just part of their life. But the person who is constantly worried about having a confrontation or who doesn't like those difficult conversations, they're fretting about it all day. They got the anxiety sweats. Like they are freaking out all day about this conversation that is coming. So they're going to prepare very differently than the other person. But what I would say about this preparation is, no matter what the case is, no matter what you're preparing for or how you d go about preparing, what you have made in your preparation is a choice. You have seen what is coming and, and what could possibly come, and what you have done is you have said, I'm going to choose to prepare by doing this. And I don't think that in our walk with Jesus, the daily walk in and out journey of living for Him in our lives, I don't think the choice is that different. I, I recently uh, listened to a lecture by a, a guy named Dr. William Lane Craig, and he's an apologist. And if you don't know what an apologist is, they, apologetics is basically the, the, the study or the art of giving a defense. It's kind of defending your faith. And so this guy named Dr. William Lane Craig, William Lane Craig he's super intelligent, I only understand about a third of what he says, but this one time he, he was discussing in this lecture uh, about the absurdity of the universe without God. And so he was making a, an, an argument, a philosophical argument, if you will, about the absurdity of our universe without God. And he made this statement. He said, to live in, a, in our world and believe that this life is all that one has is depressing. And it leaves one lacking joy. In this argument, in this discussion of the absurdity of our, our universe, Dr. Craig really kind of highlights this, this atheist who, who would say, this world exists without God. And he would go you know, scientifically and philosophically of how that would play out. And if you come down to it, he came to this place in his lecture and he said, these people will find themselves in a place where they won't want to ponder the question very long about what happens after death. And you can see this more and more in, in, in philosophers after the Age of Enlightenment, because the Age of Enlightenment comes 17th, 18th century, and 
after this point, these philosophers, more and more atheist philosophers start popping up and they begin kind of shying away after they, they think they've come to this conclusion of talking about the world after death. Because for them, there's nothing. And then they start talking about the world in, in which you live in now and how you should act this way. And, and the reality is, Dr. Craig gets to this place and he says, you know, this, the, let me make sure I don't mess this up. He says that the, the, he, he notes the rise in technology and the rise in atheism is not as coincidental as one might think. He says the person who believes that this life is all there is needs distractions like that of entertainment to take their minds off of the heavier things in life. So this atheist who's, who's beginning to ponder what happens after death, what he makes the assertion is that they will find all sorts of ways to distract themselves. They will be intentional, whether it's consciously or even subconsciously, about finding distractions so that they don't have to deal with the heavier things in life. And whether you agree or disagree with that, I think my point, based off of what he said, would be that I think even Christians can find ways to distract ourselves. I, I think we will try to shy away from some heavier things in life, and instead of going head on with them, we will find ways to be busy. We will find ways to take our eyes off of the goal. And if we don't intentionally do it, I know that Satan will try to use your busyness, will try to use distraction as a tool to veer you off of your course, your intended path by God. What are we distracted from as Christians, you might ask? Because Dr. Dr. William Lane Craig is talking about atheists who don't want to think about life after death. So what can Christians you know, what do we need to be distracted from? Well, maybe it's a lack of faith. But I, I, I would say what we want to be distracted from at times is the reality. The reality that your calling as a Christ follower is to die to yourself and for Christ to live through you. When I think about this 2020 and all of the turmoil that has come I ask myself if we as a church would have done a better job of dying to ourselves, how would this year have been different for our world? How would this year have been different for you? How would this world have been different for your family? If you could have taken a moment and stepped back and, and gone through the tension of Scripture that clearly articulates that you have died and Christ has risen in you. And so, the wants of your flesh, the things of your desires, really don't matter. How differently would you and I have lived? That's a a weighty thing to discuss. It's a, it's a reality that we don't want to come face to face with, with, but it's a reality that we must come face to face with. And so, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in First Chronicles 16, and what I hope 
that God will reveal to you the same way that He revealed to me over and over again this week and in previous weeks is that our preparation, our um, fight against distraction, our finding this ability to be grateful all begins with an intentional step, a choice to worship God. So, I'm going to give you a little bit of backstory as we dive into this passage because I would imagine uh, most of you would not say, oh, I read First and Second Chronicles all the time. I dive into it regularly. Maybe you hit it once a year on your reading plan, but I wouldn't think that it's one of those that if a new believer or somebody walked up to you and said, hey, what book of the Bible should I really open up in my quiet times? You can go, First and Second Chronicles. It's just not that one. If for no other reason, the first like 12 chapters are lineage. It's completely boring to you and I because you and I don't have a lineage on our wall, you know, tracing back to our oldest ancestors that somehow give us some sort of place in life or some feeling in our heart. But the first several chapters of the Chronicles is just that. It is just this lineage. And so what First and Second Chronicles is doing is it, is it is taking the same content, it, it is happening at the same exact time as First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. It's just now written by a chronicler. And we don't know exactly who wrote the book, but so we call him the chronicler in academic theological world. The chronicler wrote this. And what this person is doing is he's kind of taking our she, whoever it is, they are taking this text and they are taking the history of the Israelite people and they are putting it all together in two books for us to see this narrative of the Israelite people. And what's interesting about Chronicles is they don't highlight the same things that First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings highlight. They, they show some different things. As a matter of fact, they don't show a negative light of King David at all in Chronicles. Interesting. But what they do make very clear and, and make a point of interest in the Chronicles is the people's willingness and choice to worship. They, they want to make sure that you and I, after walking through these two books, understand that the people of God are called to worship. We are not simply called to govern the land and to follow all of the rituals and the legalistic things that we would have seen in the Old Testament. Know that the Old Testament people and now the New Covenant people are called to worship. So, David is made king when he's approximately 30 years old. Now, up into David's life at this point in Chronicles, He's lived a full life. I mean, he's, he's run for his life from the previous king. He has uh, made a couple of different wives at this point. He's a fairly successful king. He is balancing this idea of power and, sh and tension because once you have power, everyone else is trying to take it from you and uh, people are always telling you their opinion because your opinion isn't good enough. You know, somehow you became the leader and, you know, you were, you were just this pawn. And so everyone has to tell you how to do your job better. And so King David finds himself in a place of a lot of tension. And 
one of the things that he is looking to do is to enlarge the kingdom of God. And as soon as King David takes over, all of the people of God are united under King David. So before you had a lot of little tribes and kind of factions as you might call them, and they were divided. They, they, they had this kind of overall sense of the kingdom of God. But once David comes at the throne, all of them kind of yield authority to him and say, we will follow you. So David begins to enlarge the land geographically that God has given them. They, they went into the promised land long before David. They, they started taking it, but they didn't take enough land because they weren't faithful. And so what David decides to do is to take more land to be faithful to what God has called them to do. And so David leads armies and begins to take lands. And David takes the land of Jerusalem. And that's what we're going to read, and that's what we're going to pick up in this, in this text in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Is This is right after David has taken really this holy land, this place that you and I at least think of as kind of God's land, and he has just now taken it for the people. And what I want you to recognize as we read this is what David is about to do after winning this land, David had done this same thing several times before he won other lands. So before and after, David would kind of go through this worship ritual with the people. And what you need to know and what you need to make point of is why. What is the point? Why is David doing this. First Chronicles 16. It says, and they brought in the ark of God. Let's stop there. We're going to have a lot of stops there. You can just leave the text up the whole time, Lisa, because we're just going to kind of walk through it. So I want to make sure that everyone understands what the ark of God is. It's the ark of the covenant. So this was built after Moses gets the Ten Commandments. It was kind of built for the purpose of holding the Ten Commandments. And the ark of the covenant or the ark of God as it is called here it is a place where God would put Himself, His Spirit into. And so they would treat this thing as a holy place, as a holy vessel, because that's exactly kind of what it was. And so they would take it around. It was kind of like their, their battle cry when they would take it to places. The people of God would raise up and they would be filled with the Spirit, at least not big S Spirit, at least a small S, and they had you know, some, some gumption about them. They would be enthused to do what was going forward. And so David knew this. And so before and after war, he would take this Ark of the Covenant places so that he could rile up the people, so that he could encourage them. It's, in some senses, it's kind of like when the church gathers together today, we, where two or more are gathered, have the Holy Spirit among us, and he is moving in our midst. And so this is kind of that moment where David is trying to rile the people up. He's trying to get them excited. Like, look, God is here. He's right here in the midst of us. So, they brought in the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and set inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, let's stop there. So what you need to know, what, why this is important, is David didn't just tell some other people, hey, get ready to do this thing that we've continually done with the people. Let, let's just go through the ritual Let's just choose an upbeat song as a song one, and then let's choose a, a good transitional song two, and then when we get to that moment, let's have a scripture reading, and then we'll have a song three. 
where somebody like Becca, will, she'll slay it. It'll be great, right? And then the, 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 David's going to get up and, and just teach, and all the things of God are going to move. No, what did David do? He pitched a tent. He got ready. He, he, he put in the work beforehand. It wasn't just motions that David was going through in this moment. David, in his work, was worshiping God. He had gone through and prepared a place and then they went through their worship rituals. They, they burnt offerings and, and they give peace offerings to God. And what this is, what, what's important about this is that David led this moment. He, he looks at others and he says, hey, do this with me. And this is important for you and I to know because we will never, ever be able to lead others until we have led ourselves. You will not be a good spiritual father to your children until you have honed in your walk with Jesus personally. You won't be a good spouse spiritually to your spouse if you do not have your heart aligned with God. Before you lead others and love others, you need to lead and love yourself. Let's pick up. So David had finished... Uh, finished the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. He blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all of Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. And everyone who loved raisins is just excited about that moment. And then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord. This is an important note. Notice, we, we think about David as this reigning, amazing king most of the time. We certainly recognize his faults and his failures that are going to come later in his life. But at this moment, I think all of us would look at David and go, man, he's a great king. He is a solid guy. He united single-handedly the body of God to take over the lands and to grow. But what do we see about David's leadership right here? He raised up other leaders. In the new year, we're going to have an opportunity for for many of you to kind of stretch your leadership wings, to maybe grow some little nubs of leadership wings. Maybe you would say, I'm not much of a leader. The elders and I are working on this kind of leadership development program, process, you could call it. Because here's what I know. This church isn't going to grow because of my leadership. Let me say it again. This church isn't going to grow because of what I do. It's going to grow because of what the Spirit of God does in you. Period. So if you're looking at this place right here to be the place that just moves all things, and wow, that that guy or that, that worship leader can do the greatest things in the world, these are all good things. We need these things. These are biblical things. But I don't grow this church. Through the Spirit of God, you do. You could say, we do. That's probably a better term. We do. And so what that means is for you to be actively involved in leadership, not just be a pew sitter. When we see a lot of green, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not a lot of people invested. Like this weekend is a travel weekend. There's a lot of people that aren't here. And you walk into that first song, you go, where is everybody? It's really small. That doesn't matter. Because you're here. Let's worship. 
And my question to you would be, as a leader of this church, because whether you think you are or not, you are. If you call this place home, you lead. That's, that's what you should do. Right? You lead in other areas of your life. Even if you don't want to, you do. You have to step up and do it. And so I would say, if you call this place home, how are you investing that it grows? How are you investing your life to see the kingdom of God go right here at Piedmont? Because that is the leadership that David models for us. David doesn't just get out front and take all the credit. David raises other people up and say, hey, look what we can do. James Douthat, I love you. Y'all don't know this. He might be embarrassed. Maybe he's not. I don't know. But every couple of weeks, maybe even every week, I'll drive in sometimes and I'll see some trash out in the front. And I'll go in my brain... I need to go pick that up. And maybe selfishly somewhere I'm going, I'm not picking up trash today. I don't want to do it. I did it yesterday. I don't want to do it the next day, whatever. There's, because it's like a main thoroughfare, there's trash out there all the time. And sometimes maybe somebody on a lawnmower runs over one thing and then turns it into 15 things, but we're not going to throw them under the bus. Maybe we just did. <laughs> but James Douthat comes in on his Sunday best most Sundays pulls up to the front of that street and picks up trash. He doesn't put a glove on. He doesn't put a hazmat suit on. He doesn't even have a grabber. Old broke leg James <laughs> bends down, picks up the trash. I don't even think he has a trash bag half the time. Sometimes I think he just like holds it in his hand and then comes into the church and throws it away. That's called leadership. That's the difference between like an owner and an employee. See, an employee walks into the place that they work and they see trash and they go, somebody else will get it. The owner walks in and goes, I'm going to get that right there because that looks terrible. You are the church. You're the owner of this. And so when you walk in, like own it. Be a part of it. Don't just sit back and wait for us to do something. You can do it. God has called you to do it. Thank you, James. I love you. Appreciate it. Hopefully that wasn't too embarrassing. You need to wash your hands, yeah. That's <laughs> good. Everybody's like, I shook James's hand like five minutes ago. Uh, <laughs> we need to remember that our mission here is that we exist to lead people to, to love God, love people, and invest in his kingdom. And that will happen when you and I like, join arms and say we are going to lead for the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We can own the ministry here. Let's continue on in the text. I think I'm at the end of verse 5. So uh, it says, Then he appointed some of the, Le the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke and to thank and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Skip, skip down to verse 7. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. This is a great picture for you and I. They've just won their battle. They do this same thing before they go into other battles. And what does David do? He unites the people of God. And he says, you know what we're going to do first before we redecorate, before we get that interior designer in here and put all the stuff on? What are we going to do? We're going to thank God 
and worship him. Like before anything else happens, let's bow down and thank the one who gave us everything. And this is a a picture that you and I need to get. We need to grasp this understanding, this heart of gratitude. Because we can so easily go through, I do this so often sometimes, and, and, and it breaks my heart even when I do it, I can just go through life and when good things happen, I go, okay, cool, thanks, appreciate it. And I don't even take a, a second to go, God, thank you for that. Like we, My wife and I have tried to get into this habit of teaching our children that all good things, like Hunter said, come from God. And so when good things happen, we try to pause, not like sarcastically, but we just try to say, thank you, God. Like we walk into our house and we go, thank you, God. In those moments when your heart is filled, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you just walk into stuff and you go, man, I'm so thankful I have this thing. And don't just keep that inside, but just thank you, God, for this. Thank you, God, for that. And I know that is difficult at times because you can look around and things are not exactly how you'd want them. And I would remind you that you've died to self and Christ lives through you. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. When we arrived at First Chronicles, what actually took us there is I, I was reading through the Psalms, and I got to this one Psalm, Psalm 105. And you can turn your Bibles there if you, you'd like, but this Psalm 105 is actually a, a hymn, a song that the armies and the people of God with, under David would sing. So in Psalm 105, David records it, but we also see this same psalm in First Chronicles 16. So you read the first seven verses in chapter 16, and then you get to this song, this song of praise. And here, I'm not going to sing it. Here's what David would have the people sing. Beginning in verse 1, Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name and make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all of His wonderful works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. It doesn't say seek His presence when things are bad, when things are good, when you're looking for an answer. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments that He uttered. O offspring of Abraham, in Christ that's you, His servant, children of Jacob, His chosen ones. The way that we prepare our hearts to function in this lost art of gratitude is by worshiping Jesus. David does this in his ritual celebration with his people. He sets up in his life an ebb and flow, a kind of natural flow in their lives of worship. I was looking, you know, you get caught in like Instagram funnels, the Instagram loop or maybe the Facebook loop. I was in bed the other night, worst place to look at Instagram. And I was just, you know, scrolling through social media and uh, there was this guy several years ago, a famous guy named Jefferson Bethke or something like that. Uh, and 
you, if you Google his name, there'll be some little, he did some little cool little rhyme or spoken word or rap, I don't know what it was, like seven years ago, it was really cool, but now he's come up with this thing called a family calendar, and uh, I got sucked into the loop, clickbait, I was like, all right, let's go see what this family calendar is about, and what he did with his wife is they noticed that they were not being the intentional parents that they wanted to be. They were Jesus followers, they had Bible studies at times, and they would pray over their meals, and they would do all kinds of things, but they didn't have this natural rhythm in their life of following Jesus. The band could come up as I'm telling the story. And so what they decided to do is they started to look for kind of like a, a weekly calendar to put somewhere in their kitchen or, or in their living space so that they could kind of set up some natural rhythms in their life to give God worship and to, to point themselves and their kids back to the Lord. And what they found just really wasn't what they wanted, so they decided to create their own thing. And I'm not in any way endorsing it because I hadn't purchased it. But in the little snapshot or whatever you get on Instagram, I thought it was just really cool because they had places on there. They had like a, a scripture reading place. They had, they had a place that what we're going to give thanks for this week. And so every week they would look at it and they'd say, or every day of that week, we would say, we're going to be thankful for this. They would have times in there to kind of post what they're writing about their quiet time. And obviously they had logistics of like, Here's Monday through Friday. What's all the things coming up? And, you know, we got this party that night and this performance on this Saturday night and whatever else. But I thought it was just really cool. And they even had a place for, like, their food and, you know, planners, right? And so I thought the most important part of that was, man, they, they really wanted to at least take a first step in being intentional with creating the rhythms of spiritual disciplines in their life. And if you've never heard of spiritual disciplines or you don't know what I'm talking about, there's a, there's a great book. A guy named Donald Whitney wrote it. It's called The Spiritual Disciplines. It's not called that. It's called The Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And I think it was about two years ago we walked through this book with our students. They didn't know it, but we did. Our, our, our small group leaders kind of uh, unpacked some of this stuff, and, and I taught from that book. and. What I would tell you is that just as you would prepare for that interview, just as you would try to fight off Satan's distractive ways and all of the lies that he would tell you in, in preparation of going to the Bible and other things, what you need to do is that you need to make a choice and worship God and set up a rhythm in your life to do so. The first easy rhythm is coming to church. Like, being actively engaged and coming to church on a Sunday morning. That's a good, healthy rhythm. Not just for you, but think about your children. Think about what it models to them by showing them the importance of not forsaking the gathering of the saints. Like, of keeping church at the center point of your life. By you're, you're, in essence, showing them faith with Jesus involves coming together as the body of Christ. And it's an important thing to do. There's other spiritual disciplines that, that Whitney talks about in his book. He, he talks about Bible intake. This is us just reading the Bible, but it's more than that. It, it's understanding the context and the concepts through the biblical narrative. In, in some ways, it's understanding biblical theologies. Like, so what is the theology that we learn in Genesis 1? Is it the same thing and the same nature and characteristics of God that we see in Revelation 20? Like, 
that is a, a great picture for us to know that there's one narrative, there's one theological premise in this entire book that God is sovereign in our life and that through Jesus, redemption is had. He talks about setting up prayer. He talks about worship. He talks about evangelism, the scary word for all of us. But the reality is you and I are called to do it. He talks about serving. He talks about stewardship. So oftentimes we hear stewardship when we go giving money. That's true. He'll hit that. But there's also another aspect of a spiritual discipline of stewardship is your time. Like how are you measuring the time in your week to go, the moments and the minutes that I spend on this are exactly the minutes that I would, I would write out and I would choose. Because you can let life come at you or you can take it by the wheel and say, I am going to control to a degree what I put my life into. There are things that we can't control. It doesn't mean you're going to create some list of your week and it's going to be perfect. But I think if you just ignore it and just let life come as it goes, you're going to wake up one day and you're going to go, I'm not where I wanted to be. I'm not the person I once wanted to be. We can be intentional through fasting. We can be intentional in silence and solitude and journaling and learning. It's a great book. And the most important part about this book is that everything he's going to talk about is going to point you back to the biblical premise of setting up the ebbs and flow, the spiritual routine in your life. Because that, when you worship God, you will find gratitude. But it has to be a choice that you make in your life. I told the team this morning, I didn't like my outline, so I was just going to wing it. I always speak longer when I wing it. I'm sorry. If you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear this. God is calling you to be grateful. Gratitude in your heart comes from a place of choice. You will choose to be grateful when you choose to worship.